Hilary Harfi here. Hello. Broadcasting from Nam, Melbourne. Have you ever decided, I'm going to become one of those people who rides to work or school or any regular gig? And maybe you do it for a while and then it fades away or you don't do it and then you beat yourself up about it. Hello, friend. Well, a new report shows that the problem isn't you. It's probably your city. And the good news is we could transform our cities into cycling utopias with a few simple strategies. Utopias. If you've transformed into someone who drove or took from someone who drove or took PT to someone who rides a bike to get around town, what did that take? And what would make it easier for you to stay committed as someone who rides about half the time to work and obsessively checks the weather app before I get out of bed and decide what clothes to put on. We're looking at the barriers to cycling in many of our cities and towns and some of the simple ways that they could be lowered. But first, let's speak to someone who's been a bit of a convert. Alice Clark is a freelance writer and a Melbourne resident and didn't used to cycle to work and now she does. Alice, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. Now, like many cyclists, there was a turning point for you when the pandemic hit. How into cycling were you before then and what happened then? <laughs> so I used to really enjoy cycling when I was a kid, but when I moved from the country to the inner city of Melbourne when I was 15, the idea of cycling around the city just never occurred to me. It seemed too dangerous and like a sure way to die. But then uh, during the lockdowns, they completed a separated uh, cycle lane on my street. And then I got an office job in 2021 and catching the tram took 40 minutes, but riding a bike would take 20 Oh. And yeah, right. And I value sleep a lot more than my life sometimes. So I thought, <laughs> I'll just give it a go and see what happens. And you're still with us today. That's good. <laughs> yes. What were those first few rides like? Um, Terrifying because I was riding a bike that my cousin had given me and he is a six foot something former ballet dancer and I am not. Um, so it was the wrong bike for me, but those first couple of rides, once I remembered how to ride a bike again, they just suddenly felt like freedom. Like I was getting myself to where I needed to go, but it wasn't as slow as walking. And I had the wind in my hair and this was something that I was in control over. And it was coming during, I think this was just before lockdown four and, uh, yeah, Melbourne, we count time in lockdowns, mm -hmm. um, and so having something that felt like freedom was everything to me. And I just fell in love. Like I would ride to work during like the biggest thunderstorm. Like the number of times I walked into the office and I was just dripping from all the rain, but still grinning because it was just the best thing. There's something about um, the endorphins, isn't there, that you're not prepared for? Yeah. Like I found the endorphins even better. Like I used to be a runner many, many years ago before I rediscovered sitting and eating chips. <laughs> and the endorphins from cycling are even better than that from running because like you get wherever you want to go faster. Uh, but also it's just such a different way to see the world. And now I ride everywhere. I don't own a car. Um, I've been evangelizing all my friends to join me. Uh, and your mum, it turns I, out. And my mum. Yeah, so my mum hit 74 years old having never ridden a bike in her life. Oh. And so she bought an adult-sized tricycle, and this was during lockdown and we were I was her bubble buddy. And so I taught her how to ride in the quietest place we could find, which was the Burke Street Mall. <laughs> 
<laughs> for people who don't know Melbourne, that is, you know, for a long period of time, the busiest place in the city. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she's just gotten pedal assist added to a tricycle. And last, or weekend before last, we went for a 50k ride around. And for both of us, it's just been amazing. My, I got my wife to ride a bike too. She was very resistant and then loved it and then rode on a dangerous road that made her frightened again. And mm-hmm. she's been building up her confidence to go back out. But that's really the only thing that held me back and holds other people back. It's how dangerous some of the roads are. Well, like, and you, I mean, you've got a traditional bike, no electric assist. Is that a challenge as well? That, you know, sometimes there are hills. It's the challenge that I want. I really enjoy the burn. Like I'm not going to ride up like uh, a mountain anytime soon. I'm not quite ready for that. But uh, I love the challenge of little hills. And at first, when I first started riding, riding up the hill, there's there's a big hill on Swanston Street, which is not as big as some of the hills in Sydney, but to me it felt huge and it was just insurmountable. I had to walk up the last half. But seeing as how I've improved and how now it feels like nothing is just the most exciting thing. But at the same time, if that seems like a bit much, there's no shame in having a pedal assist bike. They're amazing. Yeah. They're really good. We're speaking with Alice Clark, who's a freelance writer and lives in Melbourne and has really, really got to love cycling. Alice, what would you like to see change about the city? Is it about kind of connecting up the good bits with the, you know, through the through the little scary bits that aren't aren't so great for cycling? Yeah, absolutely. There's a few things that need to happen. So that we've got a lot of really incredible cycle paths in Melbourne, but like they're just little chunks and they're not really connected. And so sometimes you'll be riding down a road on your separated bike lane and then it'll just stop existing, but I continue to exist. And so I think there needs to be a bit more planning around that. I think we also need a bit more education with motorists that roads aren't just for cars. Um, And just because I'm there doesn't mean that you can kill me or get aggressive. Like I've had, oddly enough, it seems to be, really big four-wheel drives and yank tanks who deliberately try to get into my space to try and intimidate me. And I've had them brush my paneers, like my little saddlebags on occasion, deliberately, (laughs) Uh, which is terrible. But I think it's just some education. I think the problem isn't – like motorists see cyclists as the enemy because we've been set up to be in competition. I think with a bit of better city planning – it could be clear that having more people out of cars and on bikes means that there's less traffic. Yep. Uh, for most journeys, you don't need a car. Yeah, I love those stickers. If you're trapped you used in a see. car, oh, the stickers yeah. you used to see on bikes saying "one less car." Like, dudes, we are taking a car off the road, and that is good for everyone. But as you say, you know, exactly. the city is set up to make it seem as if it's four cars. Let's talk mm. a little bit more about that. Alice Clark, thanks so much for joining us and, and sharing the joy. Oh, thank you for having me. And I hope I see all of your listeners out riding bikes this weekend. It's going to be beautiful for it. (laughs) Note to self, get some RN stickers printed to people who put them on their (laughs) helmets. All right, let's find out how common that joy is that Alice has described. Dr. Matthew McLaughlin is a researcher in physical activity and public health with the University of Western Australia. And he's been looking at the latest research into the current state of riding around the country. Matthew, welcome to Life Matters. Hi, Hilary. Now, we saw a bit of an uptick in cycling during the pandemic. Tell us how much it improved and what has happened since then. We did. And and the sort of things that we were hearing from Alice there is exactly the kind of 
uh, reasons that people got out on their bikes. So people were feeling safer during the pandemic when there was less people commuting and the streets were a little bit quieter and we were living in our local towns. People were finding that the streets are not too noisy and that they could go outside and <laughs> not have all of that traffic noise rushing around. The streets were easier to cross. So if they were wanting to walk to their local shops or ride to their walk local shops, uh, maybe grab the coffee. Um, at that time, it was in the takeaway cups largely, and people were escaping their house for their daily dose of 30 minutes. Um, people were finding that at that time, it was much easier to do that because our streets were much more pleasant places and I think that's where the, the crux of it all lies. Well, it's interesting, though, because a graph in some of your research showed that this is part of a much longer-term decline. I mean, the numbers now are lower than they were in 2011. What's happening there, Matthew? Yeah, so Cycling and Walking Australia and New Zealand have just published a report showing a decline or small declines in cycling. And there was a spike uh, increase during the pandemic. And so these small declines are, are a little bit worrying um, and it probably reflects the, our lack of investment in walking and cycling. So we know typically we spend about 2% of our transport budget on walking and cycling, but really that number should be about 20%. So we're, we're really nowhere near the amount of spend. And, and things like what Alice was saying, so separated bicycle lanes, yes, that's... Um, you know, something that we should be building. But there's lots of things that we can do uh, that isn't just a bicycle lane. There's there's things like changing, um, making speed safer, uh, encouraging people to buy electric bikes, pedal assist bikes, because we've just heard how, how great they can be for some people. Safe routes to school. So we knew, you know, um, in the 1980s, three in four children were walking or riding to school. Today, it's just one in four. So we've gone from three in four to one in four in 40 years, and that's really upsetting. So our children aren't learning the independent movement skills that they once were. So, and yeah, the for me, rules, it's I guess, all... too. They're, they're not learning how to, you know, share the facilities. That's it. And I suppose everybody, you know, most people will grow up to be both a, a bike rider and a driver at, at some points in their life. And it was a really great point from Alice that, you know, one less car on the street is is really great for, for everyone. So when we can replace a car with a bike, and, and I like to think of this as the size of an, uh, the car being the size of an elephant and the same weight as an elephant. So if you imagine a street of traffic and there's car bumper to bumper, imagine those as elephants. And it, it really helps describe how big cars are in our city. They're not the same human scale that we're used to um, everywhere else. Cars are, are really big objects and they take up a lot of space. And that's why we find it difficult to find a park. That's why it costs us money to park. Um, yeah, so, so there's loads of, uh, of reasons that it's mm. great to, to, to cycle more. Well, and cycle commuting in particular. Tell us about this national report that, that shows how good for our health regular cycling is. Yeah, so we, we know every move counts and people shouldn't beat themselves up if they don't currently ride or um, they only ride once a week. Every extra ride or walk um, is really great for people's health. Uh, but we know that, yeah, it can add years onto people's lives if they're more active. So really, it's a, that, that's, that's a carrot. But for many people, that isn't the main carrot to get back out on the bike. It's things like enjoyment. So we heard Alice, like it's the time that she can kind of get those endorphins in. It's a time thing. It's a convenience thing. So if it's a shorter journey uh, to walk or ride, and that comes back to 
a very important point, which is how we design our cities. So in Australia, I currently live in the, the longest city in the world, Perth. It's a disappointing statistic because it means that the journeys that we have to take are much longer. We're in the longest city in the world, and that's because we've built single-story housing into suburbia. We call it urban sprawl. It's quite a dirty word for us, and we don't like to see it. And it means less people walk and cycle, and it makes us car-dependent. We're getting some really interesting texts on this about reasons why people do and don't cycle. Uh, Infrastructure, 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 says one person we need. Pay more than lip service to building proper separated bike lanes. And we need to change the culture so that drivers are not so lethally entitled. And then this one, many cyclists completely ignore the road rules, ride through red lights, etc. Such an amplified sense of entitlement. Uh, Other people talking about safety issues and also for the bike, Canberra is cycling heaven, says one. You can ride forever on beautiful off-road tracks. It's the best. I'm 72 and I moved here nine months ago and have joined a cycling club. That's from Jen. But another says in Canberra, yep, great, lots of cycleways, but taking your bike for a ride to the shops comes with the risk you might not have a way home because bike theft is significant. We need more bike cages and secure storage. So a lot of things going into people's experience. Matthew, in the time we have available, I really want to talk about uh, a few other factors, including the environmental perspective. You argue that riding is 10 times more important than electric cars for reaching net zero emissions. How do you arrive at at that conclusion? Yeah, so simply replacing cars with electric cars is is not the single solution. So we still end up with congestion. We still end up with tyre uh, particulates, um, so our tyres disintegrate as we're driving, so there's still pollution from from that. There's many pollutants from those heavy vehicles using our roads, so damaging our roads, whereas a bicycle, it's it's really good for, for governments because they, they don't cost a lot to maintain the streets for bicycles. It, they don't damage the street. So there's a climate thing here going on because we know that bicycles are also... Uh, lower emissions to produce as well than an electric car. So when we're producing big batteries for electric cars, there's emissions going into producing those. So bicycles are a climate solution too, uh, particularly for those short journeys. And I think, Hilary, one thing that we haven't touched on is length of journeys. So a lot of people think in Australia, although you know I was just talking about it being the longest city in the world, we actually have quite a lot of short journeys in our cities and it's these short journeys, whether it be to the shops or around the corner to childcare or dropping off at the school, these make up about two-thirds of our journeys and they're under five kilometres. So really the climate thing is about changing those short journeys to walking and cycling. And people tend to rediscover their local areas. It's a really great way to to connect with with neighbours and and creating these little communities where people take short journeys walking and cycling is, is something we should be doing. It's interesting too, I noticed in in some of the reading for this story that uh, cities that become more cycle friendly massively reduce their road toll. So, you know, from a public health uh, perspective, everyone benefits, I guess. Quick question though, Matthew, e-bikes are booming, it seems, in Australia. Do you get the same health benefits from riding an e-bike that you do from riding a conventional bike? It's slightly different. So people tend to go slightly further on an electric bike and, and there's similar intensity, I suppose, in terms of physical activity as walking. And we know walking's really good for us. So it's up to the person riding, like if they've got a load of hills or um, they don't feel 
perhaps confident to, to ride that longer distance. Electric bikes are a great solution and, and really should be part of that transport mix. So, Matthew, we're going to talk in a moment about long-term planning type solutions, but in the short to medium term, what are some things that might help people get over that hump and get on their bikes right now? Well, three three quick things that we would really like the government to invest in. So, an electric bike subsidy, help people to buy electric bikes. That'll take cars off the road, start to address congestion, start to address our climate issues. The second one is safe routes to school. So, this is about planning routes around schools to promote, you know, I was saying before, three in four it used to be in the 80s and now one in four children walking and riding to school. Let's get that happening again. Let's get our children moving because we know that's where it starts. And the final one is a really, really easy one to large scale implementation is safer default speed limit. So we have quite a high safe, it's quite a high default speed limit of 50 kilometers an hour in built up areas. And, and really that's part of the reason it doesn't feel safe for people. It's part of the reason it feels noisy, that it's not too easy to cross the street. So yeah, they're the three transport priorities that we've put together. Electric bike subsidy, safe routes to school and safer default speed limits. It is a big issue and there'll be a lot of discussion about those I'm sure. But Matthew, thank you so much for your time today on Life Matters. Thanks Hilary. Dr Matthew McLaughlin is a researcher in physical activity <coughs> excuse me, and public health with the University of Western Australia. Now, we've got a few minutes left to talk about the ways that these things have been achieved <coughs> Excuse me, in other cities around the world. Sarah Stace is an urban policy consultant specialising in what makes a city healthy and livable. She has some ideas. Sarah, welcome. Let's look at some places where they do cycling infrastructure well. The Netherlands obviously springs to mind. Uh, how did they get it right? Yes, so places like the Netherlands um, have really invested a lot in their cycling infrastructure and continue to invest in that walking and cycling infrastructure much more than we do in Australia. Um, interestingly, in places like the Netherlands, they really decided to change, I guess, based on two things. One was when parents were distraught about their kids being killed by cars, which they referred to as kindermort or child murder. And then in the 70s, when oil prices were skyrocketing, they chose to really change from being car-oriented to bike-oriented. So they've really been spending the last 40 years or 50 years building that cycling infrastructure where we're really just at the beginning of that journey. There's also some European cities that have transformed themselves more recently too, aren't there? Uh, yes, Paris and London are some. So Paris, if you rode through there six or seven years ago even, it wasn't a bike-friendly city at all. It was quite difficult. Whereas much more recently, they've done some really radical changes by their mayor, Anne Hidalgo. She's built hundreds of bicycle, uh, sorry, cycleways, but also wider footpaths, planted trees, bike parking. And they've even closed a really famous street called the Rue de Rivoli, which used to be just a traffic sewer of several lanes of cars and buses. And now you can ride your bike down there. There's just streams of bike riders and the other thing they've done is made streets safer for kids. So they've got over 200 school streets where they close it temporarily to car traffic for the school drop-off and pick-up, and then school children can walk safely to school. And that's all happened probably in the last um, three to five years. It's It's been a very, very recent but very radical change. And that really ties in with what Matthew McLaughlin was saying about making things safer for kids and skilling up, I guess, a new generation of cyclists. Sarah, in Australia, these debates can get quite divisive. We've seen that in Sydney with cycle lanes put down and ripped up and traders getting very, very anxious. How have you seen this play out in other cities overseas that have 
have made changes? Because there has been um, political and, and business pushback, hasn't there? Uh, yes, there always is. We, we call it backlash instead of backlash. But I think there's not a city in the world that hasn't gone through this when they've initially installed that cycling infrastructure. So in uh, Paris, for example, people have been upset. Barcelona, that's uh, um, hugely successful with these things called super blocks. But if you go through there, you'll see signs up in people's windows where some people just simply don't like it, in part because you're generally taking, you're having to give up something on the street where our streets are incredibly car dominated. They're either moving cars or parked cars. And so when you're having to put in that cycling infrastructure, there has to be some sort of trade-off. And if you're taking away parking, people get incredibly upset about that. But I guess we do have to keep in mind that it is about redistributing that space back for more people to participate. So in Australia, only about um, uh, about 35 to 40% of the population actually can't drive. That's because they're too young or they're too old or they're living with a disability. But we don't hear from those voices because they can't, uh, children can't vote, for example. So we're only hearing a very small part of the story when we're hearing people being upset. I was reading too how sometimes traders have erroneous assumptions about how much traffic comes to them via car. You know, it was, it was much less than they had thought. So I wonder too if education campaigns might be needed as well as merely putting funding into changing the roads. I think so. And and part of it is if you if you own a shop, the chances are that you probably don't not not all shop owners live right next to their shop. And so they may well have driven there and then they make an assumption that other people also need to drive there. But in fact, a lot of their customers will tend to be quite local. So yes, it's definitely a known phenomenon that uh, retailers tend to think that more customers drive to their business than is reality. I think the the other aspect is that that is not well recognised or known either is that generally bike riders will spend less for each individual trip at a shop, but they'll visit there more often. So overall, they'll actually spend more money in their wallet than someone who's driven to that same shop. So I think, again, you're right, it's probably an education piece around that um, and presenting, presenting the evidence. Sarah, your, your uh, wheelhouse is, you know, how we design cities to be more cycle safe. Where are you seeing good examples uh, in Australia of projects that are on the right track? Yeah, there's quite a few. So it, it, and it, but it, the problem is it's patchy. But if you look at somewhere like Wagga Wagga, which is a country town in New South Wales, they've just built 55 kilometres of shared path infrastructure. That means you can walk and cycle on that same infrastructure. So they've built a quite a very extensive network, actually, through the whole town. So it'll be really interesting to see. That's only just been completed. So it'll be interesting to see how that take-up occurs over time. You've got places like Parramatta, um, the city of Sydney. You can ride from Circular Quay to Bondi Junction pretty much the whole way on fully separated cycleways. There's just a short section still to go. Hobart is about to rapidly roll out more. Canberra got mentioned um, earlier. And then Perth also has great infrastructure all the way along its railway lines and freeways and the river. The problem is that it doesn't quite get you to your front door. And that's, I guess, part of this when you're looking at your whole cycling network. It's great to build those trunk routes, but people's experience is the whole from door-to-door experience. And I think that's where a lot of our cities just don't quite get to that point. I noticed that Infrastructure Australia has just endorsed major cycling networks in Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, Brisbane. How much uh, return on investment do you get for the dollars that you spend on these big projects, Sarah? 
So this is very consistent across uh, all, all across Australia and internationally. If you spend a dollar on cycling infrastructure, you'll get around about five dollars or slightly more back. Now that that is it's a very wonkish way to talk about it, but from an economic point of view, if you invested in a motorway instead, a dollar you spend might, if you're lucky, get you slightly more than a dollar back. So in terms of return on investment, there is absolutely nothing like it in the transport world. Um, it's just it's just a no-brainer. Similarly with walking, you get over $4 back for every dollar that you spend. And about, um, about 80% of that is in health benefits. So for every kilometre that you walk, you give back over $5 in health benefits to the economy. And for cycling, it's over $2.50. So it's quite phenomenal from, a, from an economic perspective. It just makes complete sense. And what would be top of your list in our last 30 seconds together for, for governments to do? Is it separated bike lanes or something else? I think, um, Tepi, sorry, Matthew touched on a few of those. So it would be making streets safe for kids, getting kids able to walk and cycle to school safely really builds that lifelong habit. And to do so, I would say you actually need to bring in 30 kilometre zones around schools and neighbourhoods on your quiet residential streets. The second one would be to put in your separated and safe cycling infrastructure. And the third one would be to put in safe crossings so people can cross the street easily. They all sound like excellent ideas and would make uh, cities much more pleasant for many, many users, I imagine. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Sarah Stace is an urban policy consultant specialising in healthy and livable cities based in Sydney. And you heard earlier from Dr Matthew McLaughlin, physical activity and public health researcher at the University of Western Australia, and Alice Clark, who loves writing. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.